Before we jump into the conversation here, I just want to give a quick acknowledgement to Access Fund and the rest of the outdoor community and businesses in their response to this whole thing and being just so proactive and educating us on best practices to recreate responsibly and making things like masks in the interest of everyone's health. I think it was an incredible display of leadership and just a feeling of, of kinship and connectedness between everyone in this outdoor space. So a big, big thanks to all of you. I and the larger climbing community greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. You are listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I am your host, Peter Horgan. On this podcast, I'll be chatting with folks who care deeply about the climbing environment to discuss the advocacy work that's happening beyond the crag. My aim is to connect more climbers to the important work that these advocates are doing day in and day out. From the small local crags, the nation's iconic landscapes, and to the offices of our nation's capital, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. Since 1991, Access Fund has been keeping the crags, boulders, and alpine environments around the country conserved and cared for. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting your local climbing organization. Hey everyone, welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast, episode number 19. I hope uh, everyone's spring is off to a good start and things are going well for you amidst this incredibly wild first half of 2020. My guest for this month is Scott Underwood. Scott is a climber based in Washington and heads up the Washington Anchor Replacement Project, or WARP for short, as we refer to it many times in the episode. Some years ago, Scott took it upon himself to begin updating hardware at a crag that he was frequenting uh, quite often, as his concern for the integrity of the hardware began to grow. And since then, he has become one of the most knowledgeable guys out there when it comes to rebolting and anchor replacement. So much so, in fact, he has done such a great job in this in this uh, arena of anchor replacement, this field of stewardship. He's being awarded with an Access Fund Climbing Advocate Award this year for his leadership in bolt replacement. So congratulations to you, Scott. I wanted to have Scott on the show to have him give us the 101, the lowdown on all things rebolting and anchor replacement. We cover a number of topics about Warp's efforts in Washington State, how to identify bad bolts, how and when to start and structure a rebolting initiative, and he lists all the resources that you could possibly ask for to learn everything you want about best practices of rebolting and anchor replacement. Through Warp's ground schools, they have been able to provide top-notch education on the ins and outs of rebolting. They got uh, effort, ways to, for you to get involved, whether that be donating or actually getting out there and installing some hardware yourself. And we go through all of that. And if there's a question that goes unanswered here, I'm sure you'd be able to reach out to Scott and he'd be happy to lend you a hand on, on uh, anything you need. Old hardware is an issue that's ubiquitous across this country. I mean, it's it's everywhere. And we put a lot of trust in these little things and fall and repel and take big whippers on them all in time, myself included. Guilty as charged. I have done a little bit of rebolting myself, and all of the bolts that I have replaced, I've been pretty horrified by when I pull them out of the rock. I mean, they look quite all right on the outside, but the corrosion that is occurred on the inside of the uh, on the bolts inside the rock has, has been quite unsettling you look at it you're like wow i repel off these things all the time and it's a very very great feeling when you can get back up there and put some more modern uh, updated hardware in there and it takes a lot of work to do that it takes a lot of work and dedication to do what scott and warp does so a big kudos to him and the other folks he has worked with in this effort to keep our crags up to date and safe so, without any further ado, allow me to introduce all of you to Scott Underwood. I hope you enjoy our conversation. All right. Well, I'd say let's uh, jump in and talk about some bolting, huh? Maybe something sure. a little more yeah. lighthearted. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. All right. All right, Scott. Well, like I mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago, I know you're you're crazy busy, and you 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 work. You know, you showed me your work schedule before through email, and you're also starting graduate school on Monday. That is that right? That is correct. Yeah, I start at Gonzaga for 
Um, oh, nice. It's a nurse practitioner family uh, practice emphasis uh, program through Gonzaga University. And uh, actually, the class opened up yesterday, which <laughs> kind of increased my <laughs> my stress level a little bit. I was like, "Oh no, it's real!" <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be full on. So if you didn't have a full plate already, um, you know, yeah, it's gonna get get even crazier. So yeah, tip my hat to you. And uh, so yeah, thanks again for for taking an hour of your time this morning to sit down and talk about some bolting. Not a problem. So like you said, you are, like you just mentioned, you're going to Gonzaga. So you live in Washington state. Where are you in Washington? So Squim is a little town on the Northern tip of the Olympic peninsula. Um, so it's kind of what we call the other West, West side. Um, so there, you know, Washington state generally gets divided into the East side of the mountains, um, and the West side of the mountains. And generally people, refer to the west side of the mountains as like the I-5 corridor Seattle area. Um, We're further west uh, and we're separated from the bigger cities by the Puget Sound. And then we're bordered just north of my house, as a matter of fact, uh, by the Straits. So Beautiful. Awesome. Where's the closest climbing to there for you then if you're out on the peninsula? Uh, it's pretty sparse out here. Um, there's some really interesting geology out here that makes for a lot of really crappy rock. Uh, so, (laughs) so there's a lot of rock, but a lot of it's just really poor quality. Um, the closest thing to my house would be due South of town. Um, there's a Craig I started developing called Tyler peak, um, started developing that back in 2010, um, I think we've only got about 30, 35 routes out there right now. And then um, the the most popular place to climb nearby is outside of Port Angeles on the Elwha River. Um, and that's a really interesting sandstone crag that's right above the river, uh, both sides of the river. Um, I think we might have about 50 climbs there now. Nice. So. Oh, that's not too bad. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty fun. Um, like I said, the rock tends to be pretty friable, but um, yeah. um, there's some really fun stuff out here and really unique. Nice. What's well, yeah, probably a few hours from Index, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah good drive. Yeah, yeah. I got I, I got to go check out. It was my first time climbing in Washington. Uh, at the annual summit last year and okay. went to index for a couple of days and was just blown away. That was some of the best granite I've ever climbed on. Yeah. Remarkable. I have, I haven't spent enough time at index. Um, it's a beautiful place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Special. Yeah. How long have you been in Washington for? Are you originally from there? Yeah. I, uh, I was born in Yakima and, uh, spent most of my life in Washington. I went away to school right after, um, I graduated high school, uh, lived in Eugene, Oregon for two years. I actually had a track and field scholarship. Um, and then I went from, I was at a community college there for two years and then went to the University of Montana on a scholarship for, for the decathlon. Nice. I was there for two years. And then I tried coaching at Central Washington University for a couple of years. Um, and then I ended up up in Bellingham and that's where I met my wife. And we spent five years there. So all right, yeah, I actually went to Bellingham too when I was up there uh, oh, last yeah. year. Yeah, my my good buddy that used to live uh, where I live now in Gunnison, Colorado, uh, he moved up there. And oh, okay, yeah, yeah I had to check out Bellingham a little bit. And that was my he's my main my main climbing partner in Gunnison, okay. so it was good to connect with him again. And yeah, it was it was it was beautiful, awesome, awesome spot. Did you guys get to any local crags up there? Just the index, just index, just went to yeah. index. Okay. There's a bunch of uh, stuff right around Bellingham that's pretty fun. Plus, it's yeah. close to, you know, obviously Squamish is yep. a two-hour drive if you miss the traffic, and yep. and New Halem is about the same. But yeah, awesome. It's a pretty good spot to be. So, what's a little bit of your climbing history? How'd you get into the sport, and how long ago was like the transition out of track and field? So, when I was at Central, um, my girlfriend at the time. Uh, surprised me with a birthday present, um, and that was she arranged for me to go climbing with a, a local guy um, out at Vantage, which is also known as Frenchman's Coulee. There's a, a little area right off the road called the Feathers. Um, 
short, uh, good range of beginner routes there. And uh, so I went out and climbed and I was like, man, this is so fun. <laughs> and <laughs> so I was definitely hooked after that. And uh, what year was this? That would have been 1998. Okay. Is that right? Yeah. 1998, summer of 98, spring, summer. So, yeah. And then uh, I bought my own gear the next year. Um, I actually had dropped out of school by the next year. Um uh, figured out some things about myself. Like I didn't really like coaching as much as I thought I did and wasn't motivated to stay in school at the time. So, um, I ended up going and working for gold's gym in Yakima and, uh, had some money. So I bought some gear and started climbing as much as I could trying to figure out ways to climb maximally and work minimally. So (laughs) (laughs) good, good old, uh, dirtbag mentality. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've taken it a long way since then. Uh, it's just you've you know, you've developed as a climber over the last couple of decades, and have you know taken on this big advocacy role and stewardship role. And we'll get into that here in just a few minutes. But you've been involved with the Washington Climbers Coalition for a little while as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Since um, about midway through 2016. Okay. Yeah, coming on. Yeah, five years. Five years next year. Well, what I think. I don't want to like put a title on you or anything, but I think you might, you know, you might be most well known for is your rebolting efforts. Uh, you do such a bang up job in the, in re- anchor replacement and rebolting that the access fund is awarding you with a sharp end award this year. So congratulations on that. Thank you. <laughs> uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey in this area of stewardship, rebolting and anchor replacement. How'd you start getting involved with this? As I had mentioned about the, the area that, the Elwha, it's a soft sandstone um, climbing area. And I'd been climbing there since um, I first met my wife, which was in about 2000. And um, over the years had noticed a couple of things. You know, I had been involved in construction off and on since 1996 and done a lot of work with concrete and placing concrete anchors and stuff like that. And was real familiar with you know, appropriate applications of different kinds of concrete anchors. And um, after really looking at a lot of the bolts that were in place out at the Elwha, I was like, you know, these, A, these bolts appear to be corroding um, faster than I would have expected. And B, uh, they're they're all mechanical bolts in the soft sandstone. And uh, I really started thinking that that was an inappropriate application. So from there, I I started doing a bunch of research and looked all over the web, Um, looked at the American Safe Climbing Association website, and there's um, this guy Fish Products, looked at some information from him and basically scanned everywhere I could, found some stuff from Australia on gluing bolts and and, uh, another guy, um, I think his name's Jim Titt from Germany, Bolt Products. So found a lot of really good information that was more specifically um, targeted at bolting and, you know, felt at that point that I had enough good information to say, yeah, these bolts really need to be gluons in this rock. Um, and I, and I knew, knew the guys who had developed the routes out there. So I approached one of them and said, hey, look, this is what I'm seeing Um this is what I've found, and um, if you're okay with me doing the replacement work, I'd I'd like to start pulling those bolts and replacing um, with these gluons, these stainless steel gluons. Because the other thing I found was that uh, they had a lot of mixed metals as well. Yeah, um, there was a lot of stainless steel hangers and plated steel bolts. So mm-hmm. the the heads of these bolts are just incredibly corroded. Um, so uh, the guy I approached, his name's Steve Tufert. Um, he was like, "Man, if you've got the energy to do that, knock yourself out." He's like, "It's no no ego thing here for me." He's like, "Absolutely, do it." Um, so I started on on my own, um, trying to fund replacement work, and I also was like recruiting some some people who were regular climbers in the area, like trying to get them to 
chip in some dough. Um, one of the local shops started uh, selling climbing gear right around the same time. And I became friends with the owner. She um, hooked us up by getting a wholesale account uh, with Fix Hardware and also would pay for shipping on anything we bought for the replacement work. Um, oh, that's nice. Yeah, so it was it was uh, pretty good, but it it got to the point where it was like, you know, I'm paying for a lot of this out of my own pocket, and it's like the same five people <laughs> chipping in every time, and we've got a larger group of people who are using the area, including some people coming over from from outside of out of town, you know. Yeah. And uh, and I was like, you know, this this is really not sustainable, and I had also started hearing start uh, started hearing some rumblings about the property possibly being transferred to the tribe, and um, wasn't sure what the implications of that were were, were going to be. I also wasn't sure who actually still owned the property. The, the interesting thing about this climbing area is it's right below where one of the largest dam removal projects. Um, that's ever taken place. Um, uh, that happened, I, I believe it started right around when I started go, going back to school. So somewhere around 2010, I believe they started working on that and completed like 2015 or so. Um, we used to actually park at the dam and walk across the dam to get to the climbing. So we had to find a new route to the wall. Yeah. Um, but um, so at, at the time, it, the property was owned by actually the the mill that's down at the mouth of, or down near the, the uh, mouth of the Elwha. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was bought by the United States um, through a bill that went through Congress. And so the property went over to United States property managed by the national park is what I eventually found out. So, okay. so through that, I, <laughs> was like, man, I'm kind of really in over my head here and I'm kind of done with paying for this out of pocket. Um, my wife's going to, you know, divorce me if I keep trying to <laughs> fund, fund bolt replacement through yeah. our bank account. Um, <laughs> especially at the time, cause I had like a, you know, 2008 just destroyed my, my uh, construction business. So yeah. I was trying to figure things out there. So I, sent an email to the access fund and was just like, Hey, here are my concerns. I want to know how, what I need to do to apply for uh, a grant through the access fund for money for bolt replacement. Um, I'm concerned about this climbing area because I'm not even hundred percent sure who owns it. Don't know what the future is going to be as far as transitioning to the tribe. If we're going to lose access that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So Joe Sambataro, um, he's the Northwest Regional Director and I believe the National Access Director. He contacted me shortly after that. And um, next thing you know, I was invited to a, a board meeting for the Washington Climbers Coalition. At the same time, I was starting to try to organize a local group because I had found out that I needed an actual organization to apply for the, the funding for um, a bolt replacement uh, grant through the access fund. So we're trying to figure out how to make that happen. Um, was looking at, you know, doing a nonprofit and that was kind of increasing my anxiety level just in terms of all the logistics you have, that you have to go through to, to put that together. Right. So went to the WCC board meeting and they started discussing with us the possibility of becoming a branch of the WCC as a local group. Um, that ended up being a pretty attractive offer uh, because they already have a the nonprofit and we would be able to operate underneath um, the WCC. Um, and next thing you know, uh, I was on the board of the WCC. So it was like a total no-brainer to just move forward with that. And uh, so we were the first chapter, Olympic Peninsula Climbers was the first chapter of the WCC. That's kind of been the start from there. Um, around the same time, interestingly, uh, Warp was going through transition. So Warp, to give you a little history, um, a local IFMGA guide named uh, Kurt Hicks. So he's based, I believe, in like the Leavenworth area. Um, he started warp in 2012 and basically operated it solo, um, 
for you know a number of years. Uh, he also had received a grant from the Access Fund for doing some of the work that he did. Um, but he found it to be, you know, with finishing up his IFMGA and his wife going to grad school, doing it uh, solo wasn't working. So he discussed with the WCC having the WCC take over Warp as an organization, um, and then you know more more hands to do the work uh, through through our group uh, seemed like a good fit. So. I came on right as that was happening, and I was like, hey, I'm really interested in rebolting, so I want to be a part of that. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's kind of just been <laughs> – I don't know if you'd say y'all downhill from there or uh, – <laughs> <laughs> It's but, been all uh, – yeah, I never – yeah, that, that saying downhill or uphill, like I usually say uphill. Yeah. <laughs> and when we up, but going uphill is harder. It's just, yeah, some weird weird thing. <laughs> but, yeah. so, okay, so warp, yeah, it's a, it's a great segue. The Washington Anchor Replacement Project is yeah, WARP, the acronym. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. let's dive into that some more here. Remind me, what was the year that it got started? It was like 2012? By, 20, uh, 2012, Hicks? yeah. Kurt started it in around 2012. Um, it transitioned to the WCC in 2016, and I came on in 2016 as well. Okay, thank so, you. Okay, yeah. gotcha. So I mean, it's what I read from last year alone in 2019, I've, I read the, like this year in review on the website mm-hmm. and just to throw out a couple stats here, mm-hmm. uh, over 600, 600 stainless steel bolts were distributed to uh, grant recipients. 340 bolts, uh, were used to replace, uh, were replaced on 73 routes. Um, 50 anchors were replaced with stainless steel at almost a dozen crags across the state. Like that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd say in 2018, uh, the actual replacement work we got done was pretty close. Uh, the big, big difference we saw over those two years was um, we saw a big increase in the number of applications um, uh, for hardware replacement grants from 2018 to 2019. Um, obviously, we got a lot more bolts out into people's hands than we did in 2018 you know 600 bolts was was a lot to to hand out um uh, we also raised a lot more money in 2019 to support that um Mm -hmm. i think we raised right around twenty thousand dollars thanks to the the generous support from from the community wow incredible yeah i uh i have a literally i'm looking at a box next to my desk right now with about I don't know, a couple dozen bolts, if that, mm-hmm. like 600. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's yep. a lot. Yeah. Amazing. That's awesome. So you said you were, you got a lot more people applying to get these bolts. So who's, who's applying to get the hardware? So generally it's, uh, it's historically been, uh, developers who are also interested in, um, doing replacement work. Um, so experienced people and, you know, the first year we, we're just trying to figure out where we were going with bolt replacements. So that would have been late 2016 and into 2017. And we didn't really get much done in that year, I'd say, other than planning and figuring out um, basically WCC organizational policy regarding bolt replacement. From there, it was like getting the word out that here we are, this is what we're doing, and here's who we're looking for. So we had very few hits as far as getting the the bolt replacement, you know, the hardware replacement grant applications. Um, And the the next year, I'd say, was kind of trending in the same direction. And, And at the same time, in 2018, so I'm trying to think of timeline here a little bit. Um, I had this this uh, idea somewhere around March of 2017 to do a, a an initiative called Join the Rebolt. I was like, I felt very strongly through the discussions we'd had organizationally about um, bolt replacement actually being the responsibility of the entire community, and felt it was important that people felt empowered to help in any way they can. You know, including if, if you can't pick up a drill or, or a wrench, um, contribute some dollars, uh, to help us out, um, mm-hmm. or spread the word in a, about the, the program. Um, so I came up with this concept of join the rebolt where everybody can join, you know, you, you pitch in some money and you're joining the effort. Um, 
So I pitched that to our board and it took me till about early 2018 to get everything pulled together to make that uh, campaign launch. Um, and at the same time, I was spending a lot of time going to different gyms for different events and um, different venues um, around Western Washington and over into uh, Eastern Washington a little bit and talking to a lot of people. And they're like, hey, I'm really interested in helping out besides uh, donating money, but I don't know how to do the work. Is there any way to learn? And uh, that's when I started collecting names of people and said, hey, we don't offer any training at this time, but if it's something we do down the road, I will let you know. Um, and that list kept growing and growing and growing. Um, saw that there was a huge interest and again, you know, still not getting a lot of applications for, for grants. So I was like, Hey, this, this is something where we just need to start teaching people how to do the replacement work, you know? Right. Um, so that's why after, let's see, would have been late 2018 is when I did the first two ground school classes for a couple of the, um, the other chapters of the WCC for Yakima climbing scene and Metau Valley climbers um, groups. And uh, I was like, you know, we can do this. This, this would be really good um, because it's something we can package in a, a one day class and give people an introduction to the work and then uh, hook them, hook the people up with uh, mentors from there to learn, you know, how to do it. Uh, in situ, you know, on, on the rock. So mm -hmm. ask you some questions about the ground school clinics. So it just started uh, last year mm -hmm. and how many participants do you think you've had so far? I think we counted 80. Um, we did 10 classes over the course of a, um, about a full year, um, multiple that, that locations. Like a lot. Yeah. It was, it was a lot. And, you know, yeah. I, I taught all of them, um, so it was, um, it was a lot of work, <laughs> Yeah, no but kidding. I had, I had some helpers, you know, I, I always had assistant instructors and, you know, big props to those guys, uh, Trent Kontovich and Walter Jordan, especially came out multiple times and helped. Awesome. Well, I got, uh, I got a quick lowdown on some rebolting techniques at your little clinic in the parking lot, uh, outside of the Mountaineers building last fall. Uh, yeah, so that, was, that, was, that was fun to watch, and uh, yeah, there's, there's just there could be more to it than you think. For um, sure, for sure. Yeah, it seems like simple in theory. You know, drill a hole, you know, hammer the bolt in, tighten it down, bang, you're done. Right. But lots of things to consider, which we'll get into here just a little bit. But how did you? Yeah, how did you think about the structure of these ground school clinics? Is what I was reading. It's like two parts. You have yeah. A part just more like maybe a classroom, and then like the second part's more yeah, just in, in situ out outside. Yeah, I, I, you know, when I started conceiving uh, the ground school class, I, I really felt it was important that we talked about some background with um, bolting and why we're looking at rebolting, um, what you will prob possibly encounter out there, um, you know, and some some ethical uh, considerations. Uh, we also really heavily rely on, you know, organizationally, we rely on um, a lot of the best practices that have been established by other organizations, especially the Access Fund. Um, so we definitely cover the information that's on the Access Fund's website um, because we've basically adopted all those best practices as, as our own best practices. Mm -hmm. um, and also all the techniques that we use. I mean, I didn't invent them we've we've adapted some of them and and modified some of them uh but uh you know that's all stuff that i i found on the access fund website and was then able to learn how to do myself for my own replacement work and then uh teach other people so uh i felt like we really needed to look at all of that information and then go through um the WCC warp policy um, regarding bolt replacement. We we don't actually do the bolt replacement as an organization. We supply the hardware and we supply the training in the ground school setting. But beyond that, it's like people have to have to do it on their own. So there's no like over, direct oversight on the on the re replacement work at the crag. 
Um, so through this, uh, this uh, classroom setting, we're hoping to, you know, get people to a place where they feel like they understand well enough um, the background information. And then from there, we go out to the parking lot and, you know, I've got a kit that's got five roto hammers and full kits of, of um, torque wrenches, breaker bars, all kinds of stuff for doing the replacement work so that people can work in pairs in a class of up to 10 students. And we go through um, removing, placing and removing a wedge bolt and then placing and removing a sleeve bolt. And that would be the, you know, the powers power bolt uh, that we see a lot of out here. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's pretty much um, all we have time to really go over in a meaningful way. And, uh, you know, I discuss some of the other bolt types, um, like the, the split drive bolts and such, and the button heads, um, and, and talk a little bit about um, the other tools like the Hurley Senior that you can use to remove those. Um, there's the tuning fork methods as well. Um, but largely because we, we see wedge bolts and sleeve bolts here, um, that's what we focus on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Has these, have your ground schools been a model for any other organizations that you know of? Has anyone else adopted this structure or anything? I don't know if anybody's actually adopted this structure. I've certainly talked with, uh, Andrea Hassler. I, yep. I believe, what is she? The Southeast, uh, Climbers Coalition. Yeah. I had her on yeah. episode, God, 13 or something. Okay. Yeah. 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 So I, I've talked with her and her group about our structure and what we're doing. Um, I'm not sure where they're at with that. Uh, and I believe, let's see the Boulder climber coalition. Boulder climbing, yeah. Boulder climbing community. BCC. Yeah. 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 They, they contacted me here within the last week or so for some information and, it was that was more like logistics based, um, not specifically uh, targeted at the ground school thing necessarily. But but um, I believe I've answered some questions from other people. I just can't remember. I, I've seems like I'm sorting through my email all the time, and it's kind of a blur. <laughs> but. Yeah, no, I understand. Well, that's cool. You're, you're just a, you know like a consulting figure, you know, so to speak. What are some future goals of Warp? Um, anything on the horizon for the, the next coming years? Yeah, yeah. So over the last year, um, you know, I've been getting increasingly busy. Um, I also transitioned in my job. I was working. I started out in nursing as an emergency room nurse. Um, when an opportunity to go to diagnostic imaging came up, the, and the reason I did that is because the diagnostic imaging nurses are the IV team and pick nurses. And that was something that had been of, of interest to me since um, nursing school. Um, so there was a, a part-time position that came open and I was really interested in that. So um, I moved over and I worked as a, a 0.6 full-time equivalent. So that's like, you know, 0.6 of a 40 hour work week is what I was working. And essentially I worked, one week on, one week off. Um, mm -hmm. That afforded me a lot of time to work on Warp for about a year. And then uh, my main mentor retired the following year. And I was like, you know, I don't really want to work more, but, <laughs> but uh, it's the smart move. So I took her position. Um, so I went to full-time working a 0.9 position. Um and that really reduced my um, ability to get some of the stuff done that I wanted to with Warp, um, especially the ability to travel over to different areas for events, for one-on-one -on -one mentoring with people for ground school classes. Um, so I was feeling a bit overwhelmed. I started gathering a group of guys who were really interested in the organization and um, so what we've been doing is trying to build a, uh, a stronger warp organization composed of more people than mostly just me doing, uh, the majority of the heavy lifting. We, we've always have had a committee through, um, the WCC that, that has been, you know, overseeing warp. Um, and that's been various people 
generally about four or five people. Um, but I, I did do the majority of, of the stuff from processing hardware replacement grants and, you know, ordering the hardware, putting it together in boxes and sending it out to people. Um, and like I said, doing mentoring and classes and all that kind of stuff. So, um, it was just getting to the point where it just wasn't sustainable. And so I was looking for people to, um, carry some of the load with me. And I've actually been able to gather a pretty good group of guys. And, um, two of the key figures are, are these, uh, corporate fellas. Um, one of them has his own company and the other guy works for Microsoft, uh, shout out to Tim Schultz and Jason Hardister. And they, they, uh, you know, having that experience, they, they know how to run organizations really well. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to kind of run it like, you know, I was a general contractor. So trying to run things like, like that and finding it wasn't really working super well for me. Um, but we went through a process, um, last fall and, and then again, early this year, trying to, really develop the organization and set some goals and make a budget and, you know, do the stuff that real businesses do. And, uh, that's been a huge step forward, I think for warp. Um, and it's gonna, I think, make us more effective as an organization down the road. Um, and it's also going to make it so it's not dependent on me for, um, you know, it's going to live beyond my time, uh, volunteering with WCC and warp, which, which is great. Yeah. Awesome. Really look forward to seeing what comes out of that. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's move into some bolting one oh one here. Sure. Uh, thanks for the, the rundown on the warp, but let's get into the nuts and bolts of what, you know, how to bolt and things like that. You know, no pun intended. The nuts and bolts <laughs> of nuts and bolts. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. This, yeah. Bad dad joke. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right. So basics, like how, what do you look for in a bad bolt? I, I feel like this is kind of like, don't judge a book by its cover kind of thing. But in this scenario, you totally should judge a book by its cover because some of the bolts I've seen around my local crags, like the, the outside, the hangers look fine. You pull it out of the rock and you're like, oh my God. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like they're horrendous on the inside. So what's, what do you th- what's, what are some things you're looking for? Man, and I think you you are speaking exactly to the the major issue. It's like, you know, you you don't know. You can look at a bolt. You can see, you know, it looks like it's got a enormous head on the bolt, um, and you don't know what's inside the rock. <laughs> you, exactly. you may have some idea based on the configuration. You know, if you see a stud with a nut on it, it is likely a uh wedge bolt but it could also be you know um there's some sleeve bolts that have uh, a stud with a nut um and then there's also some types of the split drive bolts that look like that they're just really small um so you know and like you said the head of the bolt could look fantastic and the stuff inside the rock for whatever reason you know the rock type the amount of water that's running through the rock itself, running through that hole, staying in the hole and not coming out, um, could be corroding the bolt inside the hole and and you have no idea. Um, Right. You know, the classic uh, instance for me was out at the Elwha uh, when I was working on some bolt replacement, I think it would have been probably two years ago. I was replacing some bolts, you know, glue-ins on a steeply overhanging wall. And um, I had just used a cam in a really sketchy crack on this, you know, soft sandstone, um, to pull myself in and, and directional over to get access to a bolt, um, and was working on the bolt and the cam blew and hit me in the face, cut my, you know, cut me right by the eye. Um, I I had sunglasses on and a helmet, but it was like, it hit that spot right between my, my glasses and my helmet. And, you know, I'm spinning around a hundred feet up in the air, dazed and bleeding and it's just like oh gosh so i got to one of the bolts and looked at it and i was like the head of that thing looks fine it's probably fine i probably don't need to replace it you know my my motivation was pretty low at that point so so i was like ah you know what i'm gonna just do it i'm here so i was using a cordless impact uh wrench to remove the bolts because it just breaks them free really nicely and so i hooked up to the bolt and cranked the impact wrench 
um, the bolt spun freely and like backed out of the hole just a little bit. And I was like, what the heck? That's mm-hmm. kind of weird. So I start trying to sp- get the thing to come out again. Like usually I'm just taking the guts out of the thing cause it was a sleeve bolt and, uh, it just spun and spun and spun in the hole. And the, like I said, the whole thing, the sleeve, everything had come out of the hole a little way. So it's like, huh, something weird's going on here. I, I hooked my funkness device up to it. So that's a, a hammer, a big wall hammer with a, an eye on the end and, and a cable. So I hooked my funkness device up to that and took a few swings at it. It came all the way out of the wall with three swings that were not particularly, you know, I wasn't swinging super hard, but just tugged, basically tugged the thing out of the wall. The whole bolt came out of the wall and and it's, you know, moderately corroded with rust. But the fact that it took so little effort for the sleeve, the nose cone, everything to come out, I was just like, you don't, you know, that right there shows you don't know (laughs) what the state of the bolt is if it's in there in good rock if it's corroded or not um you know i've also pulled bolts out that you know it looks like it's got a really big hex head looks like a a sleeve bolt and then you discover it's a weird size so you put a bigger socket on it and you pull it out and the bolt itself is just a you know, machine bolt and it's an inch long, you know, that's when you discover, Oh, Hey, that's a, a caving bolt or it's a, a drop in style bolt, you know? So, which is also pretty sketchy. Yeah. Well, I think I might get your, like you're saying or phrase wrong, but uh, something to the effect of there's no such thing as like a bad bolt per se. It's just like these bolts are being used in the wrong application. Exactly. Yeah. That's something we definitely emphasize in the ground school classes. There's no inherently bad bolt. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there's just a lot of misapplied uh, bolts. You know, the split drive bolts are great for what they're designed for. They're designed for construction work where you're pinning the bottom plate of a a wall to a concrete slab and your forces are generally just going to be lateral. You know, you're, you're only getting this lateral or shear uh, force on it. Um, and you want the wall to stay in place at, at the base plate. Um, if you've got any kind of uplift going on, the, the wall is a sheer wall, you know, designed to, uh, for the whole building to resist racking forces. Um, mm-hmm. the engineers will specify a more beefy hanger or a more, more beefy anchor or even things like hold downs. So, um, you know, in, in the appropriate application and construction, you know, the fasteners work well, but just like that in climbing, um, if, if they're misapplied, um, it may work well for a smaller period of time, but you know, a lot of these things we're seeing are 30 plus years old. Um, and that's why we have seen some accidents with some of those types of, uh, misapplied, uh, anchors, you know, specifically the split drives that end up breaking along the, the spot on the shaft of the fastener where it's been split. Well, it's, it's, I guess that's another thing to consider if you don't, if you can't like totally tell what the state or condition the bolt is in, if you can find out when it was put in, like when yeah. was the route put up, like, okay, let's see, it was put up in like early nineties. That's like, you know, thirties or something, whatever. Like maybe it's time just to do it just to, you know, for peace sure. of mind. Sure. Yeah. I mean, definitely look at the outside, see if there's evidence of corrosion. Um, do your diligence with searching out the first ascensionists. You know, yep. a lot of these guys, I mean, you know, they, they keep records sometimes of, of what they did, um, what they placed. Um, not all of them, but some of them will, will know just off the top of their head, you know, yeah, this is the bolt I put in there. And, and I know some other guys locally who actually have books of, of uh, information about the routes they've put up. So mm-hmm. that can be super helpful. They're a really good resource. Good, good, good tip. So what are some considerations for choosing the most appropriate hardware or anchor setup? Like uh, it's just a stainless steel uh, expansion bolt versus a glue-in, um, you know, extending I hope I explained this correctly or well, you know, putting quick links like on the hanger to a lower, like the master point to like a lower spot where you clip into when are mussy hooks more appropriate? Could you put some color onto that? Oh, that's, that's a big, it's, it's question. Might be tough over. Yeah. Over. 
I, the general question, yeah, answer, it depends. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think some people might be interested in this, including myself. Yeah, yeah. so we, we generally default to, again, the access funds recommendations, which um, I'm not sure if the access fund has um, put the link back up for, there was a page for a while that says, you know, all stainless steel hardware, if you can use a, a power, you know, a, um, power drill versus hand drilling it should be at least half inch um minimum length in hard rock is the two and three quarter half inch stainless steel sleeve bolts um and sleeve bolts over wedge bolts because they are stronger um there's also some you know if you look at the engineering of the two two type types of bolts the the uh, wedge bolts have have a weakness as far as they they always break at the same value and loaded in shear and that has to do with the threads being external and you know when you mill something down like that for threading it um, two things are happening you're decreasing the the actual size of the the fastener um, by a bit and then with those sharp points on the threads and deep grooves it, it's going to break easier when you have those uh, those smaller surface areas that the, the the load is being concentrated on so right. um, th- those are the big things with you know sleeve bolts half inch minimum two and three quarter in, in hard rock um, if you know for our purposes if if you're looking at needing to go with a longer bolt because of the the type of rock we generally recommend just going to a glue in at that point um and we don't have a lot of that kind of gray area in the rock out here it seems to me it's like you either have all this um really hard um you know it's igneous rock whether it's granite or basalt um some some metamorphic rock that's also really really hard and then you have the stuff like at the elwa that's soft or pashastan pinnacles that's really soft sandstone so um it's it's a little more cut and dried for what we've seen thus far um also some of the the limestone out in um spokane i know those guys the bauer climber coalition is is doing a lot of replacement work with gluons which i think is great they're doing a great job out there so um beyond that um the other thing I recommend is really looking at the UIAA and what their recommendations are. They came out with some specifications for, you know, minimum um, strength values for fasteners. They also came out with some really good information. Um, if you dig in a little bit deep, you, you'll see that they have a um, minimum length that they would recommend based on the diameter of the fastener. I think it's something like the length should be at least five times the diameter of the fastener. And um, if you pair that up with their minimum load uh, requirements or specifications, then, you know, again, you're looking at that being a way to derive the size of the fastener that you should be looking at. Beyond that, they also came up with this, this zone classification system, which, which uh, um, has a lot to do with um, the climate, which interestingly, the climate and location is also going to, really dictate what you should be using so are you on a sea cliff is it limestone is it in these tropical climates is it getting a lot of water on it or no water at all and the water it does get is is it uh you know uh, something with a high salt content you know so you're you're getting these electrolyte solutes in the water is that coming through the rock itself? You know, um, there's a, there's really a lot of things to consider, and they put together a document, in, I believe it was 2015, to try to address a lot of that and help um, give some scientific, you know, science based data on a, how to make a decision, uh, you know, develop a decision making pro- process on what bolt is appropriate for what location. I, I'm pretty, I'm still pretty new to learning a lot of this bolting stuff, but if it's if it's going to be a heavy like salt content or a sea cliff or something, would it are gluons more appropriate there? Yeah, and they they recommend again. It it depends on on the zone, but they they recommend either a um, high corrosion uh, resistant stainless steel. So that's some of the the not the the three sixteen. <laughs> which is commonly called the marine grade stainless, they actually recommend 
on a higher grade, the duplex steels, um, like I think it's like 906 or 904L or something like that. Um, but uh, either that or titanium, and generally people are using titanium. You know, and the, the glue is going to encapsulate, ideally encapsulate the fastener. Um, exactly. Somewhat isolate it from the substrate. So if it's a limestone and there's like some some issues with different types of limestone and being more corrosive, theoretically it'll encapsulate it to a degree. And then um, titanium is just going to be more corrosion res- resistant than the stainless steels. Perfect. That was great rundown. Yeah, I, that's what I kind of had in mind in theory. Like, the, yeah, the glue would encapsulate the the bolt itself and protect it. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, that's I think yeah, good for the nuts and bolts of the nuts and bolts. How about <laughs> the nuts and bolts of starting an initiative to begin with? Say you're yeah you're you're the president of your LCO or you know executive director of your LCO and you want to get a rebolting initiative going. Mm-hmm. When do you when when do you move from like hey we just got a couple guys out there local community members out there doing some work you know that's like point A how do you move to point B with like an official rebolting initiative when do you think that's like actually necessary? Yeah, I'd say there's gotta be. There's got to be kind of like a, a critical mass, I guess, would be the best way to put it, of work needing to be done, people interested and willing to be involved. Um, and then, um, you know, also at the same time, if you're, again, looking at it as an LCO versus a, a group of people, how do you want to fund this? And do you really want to take that on as as an organization? So mm-hmm. um, I think I think the board needs to discuss it. You need to talk with your legal counsel. Um, uh, I would imagine the legalities having to do with liability are going to vary from state to state. So it's pretty important for you to discuss with your legal counsel what role we want to take in this. Um, are we just raising money and giving out grants? Are we actually doing the work ourselves? Um, you know, there's also considerations. Do you own the the piece of property that you're going to be doing the replacement work on? Uh, in our state, I know that has some ramifications that uh, we, we would want to stay away from other places. Um, it's less of an issue. Um, so not to make, make like I'm sidestepping the question, but, um, no, no, no way. um you know, as, as, a group of guys who are not involved in an LCO, I'd say, you know, you want to look at possibly forming your own LCO when you're at a point like I was at where I couldn't, it wasn't sustainable to be doing it myself or with the same five guys, you know, you, you can, you can reach out to the ASCA. They're real good about giving, um, hardware to and supporting replacement work to smaller groups or even individuals. Mm-hmm. But if you're at a point where you want to apply for an access fund um, grant for replacement work, that's when you're going to need to do an actual organization. Um, and uh, that, that would be my recommendation is to, when you're at that point, um, when you're at the point of actually needing to raise funds from the public, uh, that that's a good point to look at forming an organization or start an initiative um, uh, as an LCO. Yeah, perfect. That makes perfect sense. And pretty much what you just explained to me was what you mentioned like earlier on in the conversation. There was like a year there where you guys didn't get like a whole lot of actual uh, on the ground work done, but you were planning. Yeah. And what you just told me was, I think, could be summarized into one word: plan and then plan some more. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> Do you, uh, do you manage to keep track of everything that needs to be done? Do you manage some type of database? Oh, man, that is a really good question. And um, it's, it's a difficult thing. Um, we have not like cataloged at this point um, what needs to be replaced. We've largely relied on people coming to us with specific projects and proposing to replace it and then evaluating uh, the project based on the information they give us. Um, we just know that there's a lot of bolts in this state that need to be replaced. We're mostly, we have a lot of <laughs> uh, precipitation that happens. Um, right, totally. And, and again, a lot of aging bolts. So 
we know there's a lot out there. Um, yeah, we, we, we just rely on uh, the local guys to say, hey, we've got this going on. Here's some pictures of what I'm seeing. This is what I want to do. Um, and then we go from there. And then I, I do keep track for my own purposes of what has been replaced, um, but it's not something we, we um, you know, our, our board has not felt like it's something we can actually put out there at this point uh, for everybody to know. Um, we, we are working on an idea. So again, one of the, one of the guys that I recruited last year to help with organization, uh, Jason Hardister, he's uh, super tech savvy and he's looking at trying to develop an app that um, would be something you could put on your smartphone and then be able to help catalog the state of hardware. Um, and, and it could be something that would you know, it could be an interface with a community member or somebody who's doing replacement work, and um, we can track bolts that are bad, but also bolts that have been replaced um, by hardware replacement grant recipients. So we'll we'll see how that that comes along. Um, we've kind of been dealt a large blow with this whole <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, pandemic thing, but uh, yep. But that's that's something that's in the works, um, and I'm pretty excited to see that happen and uh, see where it goes. Awesome, yeah, it's a great idea. So, how do you how do you regulate uh, the bolting? Is there some kind of vetting process as to who can get the bolts and start doing this kind of work? Yeah, certainly. So, the workflow for us is I have a um, application form set up through our website. Anybody can fill out an application. Uh, I do ask for specifics. You know, I want to know exactly where the routes are that you propose to replace, the names of the routes, number of bolts that you want, you know, bolts, hangers, any other hardware that you're requesting so that I can really, you know, evaluate, you know, what, what we're looking at is, is serving the community um, with the highest impact that we can, you know, the largest number of climbers that we can. So we put a higher priority on on the routes that are going to get climbed the most. So that's generally going to be up to 5, 510, 511. Um, and um, so we look at that, we look at um, um, the location of the route, and then we look at the individual proposing to do the replacement work, you know, and a lot of these people, it's like, yeah, this is a no-brainer. This guy's been doing bolting in his own replacement work for the last 40 years. So, um, <laughs> you know, this is super easy. And then other people, we may need to dig in a little deeper. And we also ask that the individuals uh, do some due diligence and contact the first ascensionist for the routes and just say, hey, this is my my proposal. Wanted to see if you have any issues with me doing this replacement work. And, and uh and then ask them to get back with us with uh, any information they get from that. So where and how do you acquire the hardware? Who, where do you reach out to get the hardware for an LCO or another group of individuals? Where would be a good, good place for them to go? So um, we've been fortunate. Uh, we've been working with fixed hardware for um, pretty much the entire time that Warp has been an organization. Uh, Kevin at Fix Hardware gave us um, a wholesale account, which is fantastic. It's really helped us to be able to to you know maximize our our funds. Um, we also have had donated hardware from Petzl uh, in the past, um, which has been a big help. Um, we have an account with Kong uh, for stainless steel rated quick links, which is great. I think we've also got an account with Liberty Mountain um, to be able to get some some hardware directly through them. Uh, again, a wholesale account. So, um, you know, if you if you have resources with, you know, we're fortunate. One of our board members is is the Petzl rep for the area, uh, Dave 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 Havak. He was uh, an award winner for last year, um, and. You know, he's just done a, a ton for the the community over the years, and because of his connection, we had donated hardware, we've had donated ropes and stuff like that, and then also he's been able to coordinate those wholesale accounts for us, um, and uh, that that's been a, a huge benefit. And I encourage, uh, you know, if anybody can get that set up, um, they're all good people to work with. Uh, 
ClimTech is another organization that you can uh, talk to. Um, we don't actually work with them, but I know the Bauer Climber Coalition, some other uh, organizations do work with them. I, I I added this question kind of at the end here, so I apologize if, if I catch you off guard a little bit, but what's the biggest lesson you've learned by doing all this stuff, doing all this work? Like if you were going to start giving an LCO or a group of, guys, group of folks advice, you, you lay out some first steps and you're like, this is something that kind of came unexpectedly on my journey here. Just be be on the lookout for this communication um it's just a it's a big thing and it's you know um i mean any any human human interaction makes things more complicated (laughs) you know so (laughs) you know when you're working with hardware it seems like stuff is straightforward and simple but you know we're we're a community of of individuals and and uh i think being as clear as possible and upfront as possible with your communication is is a big deal and i'd say most of the 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 quote problems we've had um have you know just been with miscommunication or inadequate communication um uh mis- misunderstandings uh so i'd say between, between like you and the community um yeah it, it can be between the organization and the community or individuals or um yeah i i'd say try to try to open up a dialogue early on and be as transparent as your LCO feels comfortable with, and then um, invite people to engage in a dialogue as early as you can before you start rebolting their routes. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, um, and and again, that that's part of the reason why we really encourage uh, any of the the people who are applying for hardware replacement grants, if you're not the one who bolted the route, um, then please contact the people who did bolt the route initially and, you know, seek some um, permission or or make sure they're on board with the plan that you have in place to do the replacement work. And, and we have had people who have said, you know, I'm, I'm aware of the problems with my routes and I'm, I'm going to take care of them myself. And, uh, and we've offered hardware to them and sometimes they decline and, and that's, you know, sometimes you got to just say that's, that's their prerogative. So, right. You know, I want, you know, for me, I, I, I want to support bolt replacement. I want to support everybody doing the work and I want to give them the hardware. Um, we have the ability to raise the funds through the community and through businesses. Uh, we've had huge business support, um, from around Washington state. So I want to, to spread that love to the rest of the community. But if, again, if they don't want the hardware from me, then, <laughs> you know, okay, we'll just put it, put it to another project. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Thanks for that, Scott. All right. Uh, just kind of wrap things up here. You, you mentioned the, the access fund being a great resource for folks to learn some more. Are there any other uh, resources out there that folks can consult to learn some more? Yeah. So again, the American Safe Climbing Association, they have a lot of really good information on their website. Um, Bolt Products uh, has some good information on his website. I believe, again, I believe he's out of Germany. Uh, There's a website from Australia. It's, I believe, Chalkstone. um, And they have a bunch of information about gluing specifically. I mean, there's a whole PDF document you can download that's it really augurs in on a lot of details and um, uh, testing that they've done and on uh, uh, different ways that they've done rebolting with gluins. And it's it's really good information if you're thinking about gluins. I highly encourage people to look at at that information. That was really influential influential on my own, um, process. So, um, but, you know, I'd say access fund is the single most comprehensive, uh, website for information about basically all things having to do with bolting and anchor replacement, uh, really good videos there, uh, fix hardware. Kevin did some really good videos on proper bolt replacement or proper bolt placement, uh, for various types of bolts. Um, so go to his website and look at the videos there. Oh, and of course, the UIAA, I should have should have mentioned that. Again, that document from the UIAA, I believe it was from something like 2015. It's pretty technical and um, 
you know, it's multiple pages and such, but they also have their recommendations for climbing anchors, um, anchor meaning a bolt and hanger. Um, so definitely recommend looking at that information. All right. Thanks, Scott, for putting so much of your time, money, blood, sweat, and tears into this work of rebolting. Well, maybe not the tears part, but definitely the blood and sweat. As Scott said towards the end there, he just want, he wants to put bolts in people's hands. And how about the greater climbing community and just spread the love. As an RN, as a graduate student, a family man, and a climbing advocate, he is definitely spreading the love beyond just climbing, that's for sure. Be sure to check out WashingtonAnchors.org if you're interested in learning some more about Warp. And if you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please, again, take a couple of minutes of your time to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you feel so inclined, jump on your social media pages and share it with your friends as well. I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. I'm sure there's some more folks out there looking to learn a thing or two about rebolting. So if you know uh, if you know someone out there that is interested in this kind of stuff, please uh, go ahead and share the episode with them. I'm sure they'd greatly appreciate it. And uh, I appreciate you guys listening. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll catch you all next month. Take care.